is White Sox Weekly, your all-access pass to everything White Sox. Drive in the air, deep to right, it is gone! This is a presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Connor McKnight. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly here on ESPN 1000. I'm Connor McKnight. Sox fans, 2024 ticket plans are available right now. Be here for the biggest matchups and exciting new promotions throughout the season, including opening day on March 28th. Our ticket plans include great benefits, such as a ticket exchange program, special events, savings on single games, and more. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash 2024. Well, the White Sox have been busy in this last week. A lot of teams have. The Sox have made a couple of trades that have reshaped the way that right field could look in 2024 and will definitely reshape the way the bullpen looks in 2024. Plus, spring training invites are out. Non-roster invitee lists are out. We are getting closer and closer to spring training. Pitchers and catchers report on Valentine's Day for the White Sox. And then, of course, the full camp opens. And we've got broadcasts for you in just a little while. White Sox spring training is just around the corner. Baseball is almost back. And we're looking forward to it. Oh, hey, also, it's prospect season. Everybody who's anybody has begun to rank the prospects. And we're really fortunate on the show today to talk to one of the preeminent guys who does prospect ranking, Kylie McDaniel of ESPN, is going to join us a little later on in the show. We're going to take a deep dive into the White Sox top 30 prospects, talk about a handful of dudes, talk about where the White Sox system is at. And yes, of course, we're going to address Colson Montgomery at the top of the prospect pile and the two new players, one of them who is featured in a prospect list and the other who has graduated from his eligibility of prospect lists. That's right. Let's get started on the trades that the White Sox made in the last week since we spoke. The White Sox have said goodbye to Gregory Santos. They traded him to the Mariners for a right-hander in Prelander Baroa, outfielder Zach Deloche, and a competitive balance pick, number 69 overall. It's a deal that is a little head-scratching. I just kind of want to talk about the mechanics of the thing in the first place. Trading Gregory Santos, who had such a a breakout season last year, I mean, at times, was downright unhittable. I remember him coming into a bases-loaded situation and getting out of it, all in the strength of his own work, strikeouts and ground balls. Santos was really good uh, when it mattered quite a bit. A 22.8% strikeout rate, a 5.9% walkout rate, and a huge 52.5% ground ball rate. I mean, those numbers are terrific. I I was lucky enough to do the TV broadcast with Steve Stone. I don't think it was the first spring training game of the year for the White Sox last season. It, it might have been. Uh, but it was the first time that Gregory Santos took the mound in a White Sox uniform. It was against the Cubs. Santos faced four batters. Struck them all out. And, and Steve and I just could not stop talking about how good the stuff looked and how in command Gregory Santos was on that particular day. And at that time, he and I were both thinking, well, yeah, I mean, he's got a great shot to make the bullpen. And when he did, man, he just he just didn't look back. Obviously ended the season with a little bit of an elbow issue, and that shut him down early. But 
the the premier stuff and the low the low walk rate and the high strikeout rate made him attractive enough for the Mariners to want to pounce. Now, who are the White Sox getting in return? Prelander Baroa. It, it's funny. You know, you look at the the numbers for Baroa, 23 years old. Mariners picked him up in May of last season. They moved Donovan Walton to San Francisco, a deal that was kind of side-eyed at the time because Baroa was still starting a little bit, still relieving a little bit. I, I think the profile looks probably more like a reliever than anything else, but big-time stuff. In fact, the comps for Prelander Baroa are kind of like Gregory Santos. Big fastball, good slider, another third pitch. They kind of a split sort of thing that works a little bit like Santos's did. The difference here, though, is while Gregory Santos didn't walk I mean, basically anybody last season at the bigs, Prelander Baroa does walk a bunch. He walked 14.1% of batters last year and at least you know, 12% every year since going to full season ball in 2019. So command is the issue, but the stuff is its just not a question, not even a little bit. The idea here overall is kind of this. The White Sox are, are rebuilding, and in order to capitalize on available assets, you move a reliever in Gregory Santos that's going to be premier at the back end of the White Sox bullpen in 24 to a team that can use the marginal wins better. The White Sox probably won't have as many save situations as they did last year. Well, certainly not in 2022. So Santos, who probably would have been the closer, moves on to a a different bullpen. And the White Sox get pieces back that they feel can operate as both short-term and long-term assets. So we talked about Baroa. Um, but what we failed to mention is the guy who may be as impactful as any in these two trades, and that's Zach Deloach. He's an outfielder who probably figures to be a corner guy, though he has been able to play center field in the past. He's 25 years old, blocked some in the Mariners outfield, and had really seen an outtick or an uptick rather in power in 2023. At Triple A last year, he hit 286 with a 387 on base percentage and a 481 slugging percentage. Pacific Coast is a the PCL. It's a it's a weird place to hit. You often get big numbers, right? But 23 home runs for Deloach means he may have the kind of pop to keep him in that corner spot for a little while. For both him. Zach Deloach, and Dominic Fletcher, the other guy that the White Sox picked up in the other trade they made. We'll get to that in just a second. Is, you know, the, the upside here is a guy that can fit in the outfield and be potentially a starter in a good outfield. I, I think what is yet to be proven for both Deloach and Fletcher is whether they are starting tier outfielders or whether they are very quality fourth outfielders. Deloach has yet to play big league ball. I gave you his AAA numbers from last season. In 2022, he spent the year at AA Arkansas. But Dominic Fletcher has played in the bigs. In fact, he had a really good debut for the Diamondbacks last season. You know the Diamondbacks, having watched them in the World Series last year. They got outfielders to spare. So Fletcher, a lefty, is blocked in that outfield some. 
and subsequently, after a little bit of struggle on a, on a road trip last season, was sent back down, the Diamondbacks needing every win they could get. But you look at the time that he spent filling in for injuries to Corbin Carroll, and I, I think they had another injury there at some point, too. Uh, might have been to Alec Thomas, actually. In his first 20 games, Fletcher was hitting 338 with a 373 on base and a 521 slugging percentage. I mean, the guy, the guy was playing, hitting really well. Uh, that was his first taste of the bigs. In the minor leagues, Fletcher has shown the ability to stay in right field. He's 26 years old, a second-round pick. And we'll talk to Kylie McDaniel about both Deloach and Fletcher in just a little bit. Both guys have spent time on prospect lists. Fletcher has since graduated. Now, the the give-up here, right, is Christian Mena, a right-hander, 21-year-old starter, a guy who had thrown up real good numbers and made AAA last season and been you know, one of the top arms in the system, you know, kind of right around the same level as, as a Nick Nestrini or even a, a Jonathan Cannon, you know, that kind of thing. And because he had been Mena so young for his age, for his um, for his level of play, you know, a lot of people were thinking big on him. And I did as well. The fastball velocity for Christian Mena never really got to something that was truly impressive, kind of a mid-90s sort of guy. So the question there as a right-hander is whether or not the fastball would ever develop into something that let him be, you know, top-end starter or whether he's going to be, you know, kind of ceiling-wise mid-rotation-ish. I think either way, if you're proving that you can eat innings and get a decent number of strikeouts, which Mena did, but just barely, and, and not walk guys, you've still got a very useful arm. However, the White Sox feeling like they could... You know, use Mena, a guy they really like in the system, a guy that's come a very long way to grab a guy like Dominic Fletcher, who could be part of, if not a platoon, then definitely a starting system or starting outfielder for the Sox in right. I mean, that's what they're willing to do. That's the trade they make. Personally, I, I like keeping a young player like Christian Mena, but given the fact that the White Sox were able to pick up quality and probably comparable arms last season at the deadline. It means you can deal from a relative position of strength. Now, Chris Getz talked about exactly that. He didn't necessarily feel like, oh, this is a, a position of strength for us, you know, kind of that starting pitching depth in the minor leagues, but certainly something where they saw the upside in Dominic Fletcher. Both guys, Deloach and Fletcher, are a little smaller uh, than most corner outfielders. Deloach goes six foot, Dominic Fletcher goes five foot six. Uh, but range is not really an issue for either. Both have good arms. And again, we'll talk to Kylie McDaniel to get a, uh, a scouting report on both outfielders. I, I think, listen, I would not be surprised at all to see Dominic Fletcher on the opening day roster. And, and maybe if not the opening day right fielder, then certainly a guy that's going to take the lion's share of work there. I think Zach Deloach probably starts the year in AAA even though he's you know 25 years old, he'll start the season at 25, he turns 26 in August, played a full year at AAA last season. I just think given the options and the fact that you know he's not on a 40-minute, I, I believe that AAA makes sense, and I would think that Zach Deloach is kind of that 27th guy on that roster, just right now. You know, We'll see how spring shakes out and how everything deals but and how, hopefully, injuries work throughout the course of spring training. But I would imagine that that's kind of the depth chart. One of the guys that will probably pair with Fletcher in the outfield, or seems to right now, is Kevin Pillar, who was signed to a minor league deal uh, just last week. We talked about that on the show uh, last Saturday. Now, 
what I also think is interesting here is whether Prelander Baroa, the arm that the White Sox got back in the deal for Gregory Santos, makes the White Sox bullpen. And to that, I say, sure, why not? I mean, I think at this point, the bullpen is as wide open a thing, a competition as any. Gregory Santos is gone. All the guys that were traded last year, um, some of the guys that came up last season, like Declan Cronin and Lane Ramsey, have been designated for assignment for the White Sox. Uh, Lane Ramsey just recently, though I think he did get an invite to spring training. Um, Listen, it's a wide-open competition, and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Prelander Barroa go for it here. He did make the bigs last year. I, I mean, he threw, I think, in two games. Yeah, two games for the Mariners. Uh, got beaten around a little bit, but that's you know that's not really representative of who he is. It was two games, and you know you got to wait a little while to see something really come of a guy. But at five foot eleven and a blazing fastball and a really good slider, Prelander Barroa could be right there in the mix for the White Sox bullpen as much as anybody else come the end of spring training and head north to Chicago to take on the Tigers. When we come back, I want to go over the list of invites to White Sox spring training. We've got non-roster invitations. An old friend is coming back, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing him at Media Day coming up here in a couple of weeks. It's been a long time since I've talked with Danny Mendick, and I'm very much looking forward to it. We'll also talk about the minor leaguers that got the invite to spring training, and don't Go anywhere. Stay with us, because in the second half of the show, we're going to talk to prospect extraordinaire. Nope, don't say that. At the end of the show, we're going to talk to Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. He ranks prospects and does a heck of a job with it. We'll talk about the White Sox system with him. I'm Connor McKnight on White Sox Weekly. You've got ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's home for sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. Back, it's White Sox Weekly Stay Out of the Elements in 2024. Located on the 200 level behind home plate, the Guaranteed Rate Club offers all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and complimentary parking. Plans start at 20 games. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash GRC or call or text 312-674-1000. I'm Connor McNutt. We're going to talk to Kylie McDaniel, who ranks prospects for ESPN. He's an MLB insider for them in just a few minutes. Wanted to talk about the invites to spring training. A couple of names we've seen already, and a couple of new ones as well. The White Sox have agreed to terms on minor league contracts with these 11 players. Right-hander Justin Anderson, Joe Barlow, Jake Cousins, Chad Cool, and Jake Woodford. We've talked about Barlow, Cousins, Cool, and Woodford on the show already. Catcher Chucky Robinson, infielder Danny Mendick who's been a guest here on White Sox Weekly. Outfielders Rafael Ortega, Mark Payton, Brett Phillips, and Kevin Pillar. We've talked about all of these guys, uh, or at least most of them, except for Danny Mendick. Welcome back, bud. Looking forward to it. And listen, if if Mendick is hitting the way he did toward the end of his 2022 campaign, before Adam Hazley ran into him down the left field line at guaranteed right field, and Mendick blew out his knee, listen, that that's... That's a guy that can get starting number of second base appearances for the White Sox at some point in the season. I understand that Nicky Lopez is there. He's got a great glove. There's always been a question of how good Lopez could be at the plate. 
Mendick can hit just as well, I think, and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see a battle for playing time there between Danny Mendick and Nicky Lopez. There's one other that wasn't in the press release. Jesse Chavez, the 40-year-old right-handed reliever, is going to make the White Sox as a uh, as a non-roster invitee. We'll see if he makes the White Sox bullpen, but I wouldn't be surprised. At 40, the only question is, can you do it for another season? Last year, with the Atlanta Braves in 34 and two-thirds innings, he had a 156 ERA and a 1.096 whip. I mean, the guy was really good, has been for a while, and certainly a useful guy for a very long time. Now, the minor league invites, the guys from White Sox camp that are going to be in the big league camp at least for a little while, the pitchers, Jonathan Cannon, Jordan Leisure, and Nick Nestrini, the guys the White Sox got from the Dodgers, Edgar Navarro, Nick Padilla, and Lane Ramsey. Left-hander Kai Bush and Frazier Ellard. The catchers, Adam Hackenberg, Carlos Perez, and Edgar Caro. Infielders, Tim Elko, Colson Montgomery, and Zach Remillard. Some really familiar names. It'll be fun to see Jordan Leisure and Nick Nestrini pitching for the White Sox for the first time in spring training. And I will be very interested to see whether Colson Montgomery can make the club out of camp. I think it's a long shot, but we'll talk to our next guest, Kylie McDaniel, about exactly that when we come back. Those are the invites to White Sox spring training, which starts really soon. First full squad workout on February 19th. We'll talk to Kylie McDaniel about the whole system when we come back here on White Sox Weekly. We are talking White Sox. This is White Sox Weekly. If you missed the show, we put the podcast up on the ESPN Chicago app. So listen on your time. White White Sox Sox Weekly. Weekly. ESPN Chicago. Chicago's home for sports. White Sox Weekly here on ESPN 1000. I'm Con McKnight. Our guest is Kylie McDaniel, ESPN Baseball Insider. He is a prospect writer, scouter, author. You can pick up his book, Future Value. It's out now. Wrote that with Eric Longenhagen, and it is a good one. I uh, also spent time in front offices in four different organizations. Kylie, thank you so much for coming on. It is very much prospect season, so we're real, real lucky to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, very very busy this time of year, as my wife can tell every time I duck out of a room and take a phone call. No doubt. Uh, you've got the, the rankings out for each and every system, uh, each and every prospect in the White Sox system you've got ranked. Um, but I, I first, before we get into some of the names and exactly where you've got the Sox, just kind of generally here with the White Sox regime change, Chris Getz coming in as the GM, Josh Barfield taking over as farm director, Mike Shirley still on as the, uh, the guy in charge of the amateur scouting, how do you see the, the philosophical changes for the White Sox over the last six months or so? I know it's not a lot of time for them to make wholesale changes, and yet there's a lot of things that they have altered here. Yeah, I sort of uh, gestured toward it at the beginning of the uh, breakdown of the White Sox farm system and the, uh, the AL team rankings that uh, similar to the Royals, there was a longtime sort of regime. I, I would even sort of combine Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams into you know one thing that they kind of worked uh, alongside each other. We're in, you part of the same tree, I guess, for a while. And now we're in the first year of the next one. And it was like 
you know, someone that works underneath both of them in the same way that Kansas City had Dean Moore there for a long time, and then he was fired, and then his number two took over. And so in both cases, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the people you mentioned. You know, Mike Shirley and some of the other guys are exactly the same people were in charge. Uh, and in some cases, it's, you know, Josh Barfield, like there's some new people, but also just like, you know, what does the director of player development do that isn't also blessed by the GM or whatever? Like, you know, not a ton, like they could potentially, but not not usually a ton, uh, which I can tell you from being in a front office is usually like a group of two or three people. It's usually GM, uh, an AGM or two, maybe a special assistant. And, you know, there's those are usually the titles of the people that are doing all the things and sort of setting everything that's happening. And so the fact that, you know, the the vast majority of the people in charge here and in Kansas City are people that were in there under the last regime means you're going to get a lot of the same stuff. And I think the difference, obviously, is when Han and Kenny Williams are here, which I think is part of the reason for the change at the GM spot, is it was spending money, going for it. You know, players in the international market, generally the big bonuses didn't go to 16-year-olds. They went to, like, 20-year-olds, often from Cuba, uh, to try to make the team better. Like, there was just, like, a, everything was pushing toward that, and then that didn't work they pivoted away from it. They started trading guys away. Now Chris Getz is in charge. He's made you know a handful of moves, but this is obviously a rebuilding year. The team was not good last year. They're not going to be good this year. I would imagine they're probably not going to be good in 2025 if I had to guess, but they are trying to accumulate players in the farm system and do all those sorts of things. Uh, and so I think that was part of the reason for the, the recent trades last week uh, with Seattle and Arizona is, is toward that sort of new reality and tr- trying to make that a little more feasible for the next couple of years to then build toward what the next contender is going to look like. Maybe that's a good place to start. I know on some prospect lists, a guy like Dominic Fletcher isn't going to be found, right, having played in enough uh, major league games to graduate him from most everybody's ranking system. But Zach Deloche is going to be. And, and the White Sox have been looking for that guy to take right field or, you know, platoon of guys, for that matter, to take right field for a little while here. I, I'm... I'm encouraged by the moves myself in that you've got some guys with differing skill sets but that could take over that position and run with it for a little while. But the trade itself that set Christian Mena away and brought back the outfielders, uh, one of the outfielders rather, was a little bit confusing because you are moving a 20, 21-year-old arm in order to get a guy that's 25, 26 years old. Separate them a little bit, Fletcher and Deloche, but how were the rankings and the, the ratings for them coming into you know, now what's going to be their later stages on prospect lists. So Fletcher was one of those guys. I mean, he's been known since he was in high school. He was a high-profile player in Southern California. They went to Arkansas for three years. Was, again, a very high-profile guy that's easy to scout. Uh, and I think he has been almost the entire time he's been watched from, like, his junior year in high school in Southern California until now as what scouts would term a classic, like, role four, which is to say, you know, role five is, like, a low-end everyday player. A role four would be a sometimes everyday player, a platoon player, um, a guy that's not quite good enough, a really good fourth outfielder that can play all three spots that can hit, but maybe not quite enough. You're sort of classic tweener where the power fits in center, but the defense fits in right. He's essentially always been that, that kind of guy, one form or another. He's now he's changed a little bit in the last couple of years um, where I think he's a corner guy that has become more power over hit, and he's been sort of leaning into that. But it's probably 20 home run power. So the reason I say that role four thing is that the gap between a role four and a role five. So typically, if you have a role four player starting for a team, multiple of them, you're not very good. And if everyone's at least a role five or better, then all of a sudden it's okay. And the gap between those two things, especially in like a left-handed hitting outfielder, is very small. 
the guy that hits you know 250 with 12 homers in a corner, that's a roll four. That's a that's a platoon guy. He's left-handed. He'll play you know, majority of the at bats, but you set him against lefties. Roll five is going to hit you know 275 with 20, 22 home runs, and like is an okay fielder. And Fletcher is like somewhere between those two. He's going to be one of those two. That's the kind of guy he is. And I would imagine the White Sox think he, the with full playing time that he probably wasn't going to get going to get in Arizona. Mm-hmm. They have more guys behind him coming, like Drew Jones. He was probably going to get squeezed out and always be in a part-time role. And so I think they maybe saw that in, in these trades that Santos maybe was at the peak of his value, which very well may be true. Having an elite uh, you know, reliever uh, for the late innings on a team that's not going to win the many games doesn't make a lot of sense, which I think is probably true. And that Fletcher may be a guy that had value that he needed to uh, establish by being the everyday player and not having a ton of pressure on him for the next couple of seasons. This is the window where he could do it. So I totally understand where they're coming from, I I probably lean toward him being more of a really good fourth outfielder platoon guy and nice to have as opposed to a definite starter. But it makes sense to have that guy there that's uh, 26 rather than a 34-year-old guy on a minor league deal that absolutely isn't going to be on the team next year. And if he's any good, you can't build around him. Like I get the, the impulse to want to do that rather than get a bunch of veterans to fill out that spot. So I, I see the motivation. I could see it working, uh, even if I don't necessarily love the deal. It's It's totally fine and defensible. I'm looking through some of the rankings. We're talking with Kyla McDaniel of ESPN. He's an MLB insider and prospect ranker. Um, I'm wondering, when you look through everybody else's rankings, right, whether it's Pipeline or Fangraphs or, you know, Athletic and Callis, everybody that does this, you you normally see Colson Montgomery, Noah Schultz, and Brian Ramos in that top three, usually in that order. Some people have Ramos flipped with Schultz because he's 19 going on 20 and hasn't pitched a whole lot of innings yet. Not not usually. What I'm interested in, Kylie, in, in your rankings, and I want to get into some of the top guys as well, is that, and I don't want to give exactly away where everybody is, but you got Jonathan Cannon as the next arm on that list, you know, a, a ways down, but that next arm on the list for the White Sox in their system. What sets Canada apart from guys like Nestrini and Eater and Leisure, guys that um, are frankly going to have more, I think, name recognition to White Sox fans? Yeah, I have them all in like a group. I think they're all on like a similar tier. I think you even throw Prelander Baroa from uh, the recent deal with Seattle on there. They're all different sorts of guys. But for me, Cannon has been uh, the, the same kind of guy for like going on three, four years now where it's, four, maybe even five pitches, depending on how you define all of his different, he has two different kinds of fastballs, a cutter, slider, and curve. So like that might be six pitches, depending on how you define it. Mm-hmm. And basically everything he throws is above average. And his is a little more of like a pitch to contact ground balls, as opposed to top of the zone, four seamer swing and miss kind of guy. So he'll be a little underrated if you just kind of go by the strikeout to walk rate relative to, you know, his age and level and all that kind of stuff. Because of the kind of pitcher he is, and where he was drafted, uh, there was some concern he might be a guy that gets injured, and that hasn't really been the case in pro ball. So I think he's you know worked his way past that. Um, I think he is a very reliable guy that I think has a good chance to be one of those dudes that can give you 150 innings of a four ERA, and and not have to have you rely on that bullpen. And I think those guys are obviously like underrated uh, in the prospect world because you look at guys like Seth Lugo and Michael Waka that are probably a little bit behind the kind of guy that I just described. And those guys are signing multi-year deals for 10 to $15 million a year. But then you see a prospect that's that kind of guy. And all of a sudden those guys started 150th or 200th overall. And I was just like, I don't know, that guy seems like he's the best chance to do that. Whereas all of those guys you mentioned have real risk of either coming off of surgery. We're not sure if the stuff is back being a reliever, being a one inning guy. Uh, you know, there's all those different sort of, some guys are running high walk rates. Like all those guys have risk to just be like another generic reliever that comes up and in three years is on waivers again, or, you know, gets non-tendered or that kind of thing. And Canada means, 
me, has the the look of a guy, while all those guys are similar in value, of the guy that hangs around for five or six years and gives you, you know, 600 innings before he hits free agency, which is what this team needs, and I think further what major league teams are looking for once you can establish that that's what he is. Teams really pay through the nose for those guys. That's really interesting to me. The idea, I mean, we know that we've changed the definition of an eat innings eater, uh, you know, probably some years ago already. But I wonder like, how much does that affect the eventual grade, the future value grade that you'll put on him, right? I mean, it's like you say, it's got to be tough to identify the guy that can go 150, 180, 200 innings until he's done it in the bigs. But you can kind of see the picture there a little bit clearer than maybe you can some of the stuff. Yeah, when I first started doing this, I mean, what, like 15 years ago now? I, I realize now every time I reach back for how long ago it's been, it's longer and longer. Um, it used to be, can this guy throw 200 innings? And now it's, what was it, like 10 guys did that last year? It's just like, right. well, that's a hilarious thing. You have to you have to be, like, lucky and athletic and have great stuff <laughs> and great command. And, like, it's just sort of like, it doesn't really happen. But the idea that this guy could give you 150, it's like, I think it was a walk assigned for 12 million this year and threw 120 innings last year and was, like, you know, mostly healthy and, like, mostly what you thought he would be. And it's just sort of like, that's $12 million now? Right. Or it's that like a reliever right, with a good breaking ball. Like, yeah, but like Seth Lugo was like a reliever with a really good breaking ball, and that was pretty much all he was. And then he like started for a year or two, and now he's $30 million. It's just sort of like, man, I got into the wrong line of work because that seems like a lot of money for being kind of good for a year or two. When you, uh, when you look through the rest of the list, and actually we were just talking on the show uh, about the White Sox prospects, the minor leaguers who were invited to spring training. Edgar Caro is one of three catchers, Adam Hackenberg, Carlos Perez, and Edgar Caro. Prospects invited to spring training for the White Sox here in 2024. Carroll was a headliner in a trade that sent Giolito and Lopez to the Angels, of course, and is one of the better catching prospects. Uh, what sets him apart? What are the areas of his game you'd like to see him work on here, and do you figure that AAA is in his future at some point in 24? So, like, the broad stuff that he offers – is hard to find. You've got a switch hitter that has been young for his levels, has really hit, if you just look at, like, strikeout to walk rate and raw power just as, like, the things he's demonstrated he can do, and also being a passable catcher. You're immediately in a small group of, you know, maybe 10 to 12 guys in the entire minor leagues when you talk about guys that are, you know, the ages of prospects and things like that. So he was, like, pretty easily on the top 100 because in 2022 he was a teenager in low-A with fantastic control of the strike zone, who had 17 home runs, and looked like he could work his way into being a guy that's stuck behind the plate as a catcher. He's on that spectrum of, I think he can do it, I'm not sure, and there were sort of different opinions. And I found, it's typically if you looked at a big league team where the guy is like, eh, he seems okay, like he's not a great framer, those teams think guys like this can catch, and then the teams that have Yadi Molina for 10 years, those teams don't think this guy can catch. That's kind of like where things land with guys this young. And then in 2020, he still had good control of the strike zone. The raw power was still mostly there. But the in-game home runs, lifting the ball when he hit it hard, that just wasn't happening. And so all of a sudden, when he gets to the upper levels and those home runs aren't there, the power's not there, the overall line's a little bit down, you're still not sure he's a catcher. All of a sudden, you look at the whole thing differently, and now he's just in that bucket of just like, eh, might be a first baseman, not a ton of power. You can really get down on a guy like that if you want to. But it's not like he's that different than he was the year before. All the, all the like raw tools are there, all the ability to control the strikes. It's hard to teach that you can't really find anywhere. He can still do all that stuff. So I think the idea would be maybe he opens the double A to go back and really establish himself, but he was still above league average last year, even with those concerns. Or do you stick him in triple A and just say, hey, you're going to be in the big leagues for us at some point, at some position. It, you know, you're part of our future. You were the headliner in a giant deal that was probably a little painful to make at the end of an era. Um, let's put you in triple A and, and, you know, make sure you can make all these adjustments 
and and have you catching former big leaguers that are at the end of their career that can kind of teach you what to do as opposed to double a where you're competing with everybody like the culture is a little bit different so i think they're going to depending on where his mind's at and what they think he needs to work on either put him in one of those two environments based on what they think will be best for him going forward as opposed to like what level of competition will he hit more home runs than like that kind of stuff for this year isn't really that important it's just that he he can get to a point where in 25 26 he can be uh, the guy where you can say, hey, there's six, seven guys. Like, we got kind of a core coming together. Like, some young guys are putting some things in place. And then we can sort of imagine where this is headed after that. He is one of the four or five names, you would say, when you're, when you're putting together what the future looks like. Noah Schultz is, uh, is a guy that's got some helium, as they say. He is uh, incredibly young, obviously a draft pick out of high school, local to the White Sox. His his prep career is crazy, right? You've got COVID, and then he gets mono and pitches, I think, all of four or five innings in his senior year, and then debuts in minor league ball and allows runs exactly one time he pitches. What would be what would be a resounding success for Noah Schultz in 2024 if you were Josh Barfield, if you were the farm director? Is it a is it an innings load that you like to see him reach? You know, kind of success be damned. Is it a strikeout total? Like, how how would you set the bar for Noah Schultz this coming year? Well, so I think it's instructive to look at the 2022 high school pitcher class. It was pegged maybe in 2020. Hey, that 2022 prep pitching class is really good. I think there were like eight guys that got over $2 million. And I don't think any of them threw more than 50 or 60 innings this year. Schultz only threw 27 innings. All that to say, the expectations are that your first full year in pro ball as a high school draft is we hope you can make 10 to 15 starts that you're sort of healthy and nothing sparking in your arm and all that kind of stuff. No one's going more than three innings. We're keeping on a pitch count. We're going to make you throw a, a set amount of fastballs. There's some teams that make their pitchers throw like 85% fastballs. And if they happen to be like 82%, they'll bring him back out there to throw three fastballs to get him to where they need to go and then pull him off the mound. Like there's that. So you can almost throw out the stats the first year for these guys because there's like, it's like very specific what you're doing. It's almost a sim game when they're out there. Right. And he still had really good numbers. So I think the first thing is make sure he's healthy, stretch him out to where maybe he's going three, four, five innings and outing. Maybe cap his, you know, pitch count at 75 and hope he can get to the fifth inning while doing that sort of thing would be a great sign. Um, but he is so unique. Uh, I mean, he's six foot nine throws from a low slot as a lefty. He kind of looks like Gumby out there. And basically every pitch he throws is plus, if not better. And he kind of throws it over the plate. He's a good enough athlete to make six foot nine kind of work. So you, you obviously immediately think of like Blake Sna- or sorry, not Blake Snell, of Chris Sale. Because of the sort of like weird angle, arms and legs, the whole thing, and everything's just darting all over the place. But, uh, you know, there's like bump garners, there's all kinds of guys that kind of do some stuff like him. But like he threw over the summer going into his draft year, I want to say four or five times, and I saw a couple of them. And then, as you said, because it was cold in Illinois, he didn't come out until late. And then because of COVID and Mono didn't throw that much, ended up throwing in a college summer league late, and then only threw 27 innings this year. Like he's only been watched by scouts for like 50 innings in his, his entire life. So we just don't have a lot. That's the reason he lasted until late in the first round, because I think he was probably like a you know 10 to 15 overall talent. But because he was advised by Scott Boris and you have all of these questions and then for a couple of his outings in the spring, he didn't have that many. He didn't throw a lot of strikes. And then later in the college summer league, he did. It's just I bring all this up to sort of paint the picture of like this could be anything. It could be one of the 10 best pitchers in baseball. And it could be a guy that just like, you know, takes it slow for the next couple of years and is trying to build a foundation. 
because some of these other kids are throwing 50 innings a summer and then 50 innings in the spring and then might have thrown 60 last year and are going to throw 100 this year. Like, I don't think he's on that program, but he's ranked so high on these rankings because, like, he could literally be anything. And these other guys, it's usually like, well, if he's not throwing 95, he's not really that good. With Noah Schultz, like, he could throw 88 to 91 and be, like, a number two starter. Like, he, he's got that kind of ability because everything moves so much and he can sort of manipulate the ball in such a way and it comes in from such a tough angle. Like, it's a very unique set of characteristics, which is why everyone's so excited. Man, you love to have a guy like that in the system. You really do. Kylie, hang on. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we've got a lot more with Kylie McDaniel of ESPN about the White Sox farm system. Sox fans, catch the action from a private diamond suite in 2024. Learn more about our different suite sizes and how you can host your closest friends and family with customizable food and beverage options next season. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash suites. Or call or text 312-674-1000. Stay tuned. More White Sox Weekly with Kylie McDaniel next on ESPN 1000. This is Chicago's home for sports. On app. The ESPN Chicago app. In HD. FM 100.3 HD2. And of course on AM. ESPN 1000. This is White Sox Weekly. Welcome back to White Sox Weekly here on ESPN 1000. I'm Connor McKnight. Be even closer to the action in 2024. Located directly behind home plate, the Wintrust Scout Seats offer access to our luxury club experience with all-inclusive food and beverage, in-seat service, and parking. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash scoutseats. Call or text 312-674-1000. Kylie McDaniel is our guest here on White Sox Weekly. He is a prospect writer extraordinaire. For ESPN, you can find his updated system lists. He ranks each and every system in Major League Baseball and each and every prospect within the system, well, at top 30 or so. Uh, and all those lists are out now on ESPN.com. Kylie, I'm sure you could tell we're working our way kind of up the prospect rankings here for the White Sox. Before I ask about Colson Montgomery, do you have, other than the names we've specifically mentioned here, do you have a I don't know, like a favorite riser in the White Sox system from your list. Is there a guy who, you know, that we're not talking about too much to take a cliche from talk radio? Here's a thing nobody's talking about. Is there a a prospect that doesn't get enough lift that you kind of want to pluck out of the list and mention to White Sox fans here? Uh, I'll toss a couple names at you. Uh, Tanner McDougal uh, is coming off, or already came off of Tommy John. I really liked him leading into the draft as an unheralded guy that signed for, I think it was close to a million dollars. That has like above average to plus stuff. Big kid, good athlete, good delivery. I think he's a guy to look out for. Um, Javier Magallon, uh, second baseman, put up great numbers in short season last year. If he does it again in full season, might be a guy that shoots up the list. Jacob Burke, center fielder out of Miami, was an afterthought on a pretty good Miami team. And a couple guys told me before the draft, like, hey, this guy's going to be good. Like, he should go in the third or fourth round. He's not going to. And he has lived up to that. He, he should have gone in the third or fourth round. He didn't. So think of him as a third or fourth rounder. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. A guy that's just fun to watch, George Wolkow, another kid from Illinois that is just imagine Joey Gallo. Uh, he has like potential 40 home run power and is probably a right fielder and is, uh, I think, just turned 18 now. Um, so he's a very, a very exciting guy. Uh, that could be a lot of things. Uh, and then sort of like the, uh, the pick to click or the guy that I think might be uh, left behind a bit is uh, Nostrini is maybe like the, the headliner in that deal with the Dodgers. Uh, but Jordan Leisure was like a breakthrough guy on a pitching staff that might have had a dozen future big league pitchers on it, double A for the Dodgers. He's more of like a one-inning reliever type, a late bloomer. He was 25, came from a D2 college. Uh, but he might have two plus-plus pitches and throw strikes. 
So I think he could be one of those guys that comes up and might, you know, for all we know, by the end of the season, might be the guy that replaces Gregory Santos in that sort of, you know, set up kind of role, maybe even as, as a closer. I think he, he could end up being the better pitcher of those two. And I feel like Nostrini gets a lot more attention than he does. I'm glad you mentioned leisure, but as wide open as the White Sox bullpen is going to be after these trades, and we talked about this some earlier on the show, he could, I mean, he might have to work a little bit to make the team out of spring training, but there's no reason he couldn't be there, I mean, health accepting, sometime June, July, something like that. I mean, that's kind of the path he's got. Yeah, I mean, he's certainly close, and I think if there is one classification of player that can often get pushed, is the one-inning reliever that has really good stuff that's performing in the minors. At some point, you're just sort of like, well, this guy's doing there. How much different is it going to be up here when he's only facing two or three guys at a time? Yeah. You can get away with a couple bad pitches if it's 98 above the zone. They're not going to hit it. Whereas the starter that throws 90 makes one mistake. He's got 100 chances to make a mistake. This guy's got like 15. Um, so there's like a little more margin for error. And if the guy comes up and does well, he just sort of stays forever. And I think he fits the description of the guy that you think might come up and, and be good in a short stint that has, has proven he can do it um, at the at the, low, at the lower levels, or I guess the upper minors, the lower than the big leagues. Uh, but I think because he doesn't have the high draft pick and the bonus and the name recognition, I think he kind of gets pushed to the back. But obviously the Dodgers know what they're doing when it comes to pitching, and he just came out of that factory. All right, the crown jewel of the system, the guy that many have ranked in the top 10 or top 15 or top 20 or some places lower than that. He jumps around some. Colson Montgomery, what does it take for Colson Montgomery to stay at shortstop? How high is the ceiling for this young man, and what's got him ranked in the top 10 on your 100? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily think of it as can he stick at shortstop, what would it take, because I think he's on that sliding scale of if he doesn't stick at shortstop, it's probably because he continued getting bigger and stronger, probably lost a step of lateral mobility. He'll go over to third base, probably be an above average third baseman. And that probably means his powers a tick better. So it's really more just like where on the spectrum is he going to fall? Is he going to, because we've seen examples of guys uh, where they will lose 15 pounds to play shortstop and then lose two grades of power. And you're like, well, I mean, I'm not sure I wanted you to play shortstop that bad. And I think that's probably the area that he's on where I think some people could look at him and say, oh, he's sort of like, you know, a left-handed Carlos Correa or Corey Seager. And I'm like, no, I don't think he's quite that level of athlete where he can be that big and play a really good shortstop. I think he is a sure-handed guy with a good arm. And I think the lateral mobility isn't quite there. But oftentimes, guys, that the lateral mobility is good for one step, but then the fourth step that not quite there, that's perfect for third base. In fact, it like fits third base better than shortstop. And I think he's probably a little more in that area where you're not mad if he's a short, he has some trouble going deep into the hole or getting to that fourth step up the middle. But, you know, usually only plus defenders are doing that. And these days, I think it's with, with shifting that being a thing, a lot of teams have the plus defender there, and then they put all the bats in the other locations. Um, I would say what the current version of him is, is probably a third baseman, passable at short, but you're looking at 25, depending on how good the hit tool is, maybe 30 home runs a year. And he has real bat control to where you can be confident that he's got the ability to hit 260 or better. He's got the pitch recognition to get at least a 10% walk rate. The guy might put up 350 or better on base percentages. Mm. Uh, It's left-handed. It was a former basketball player that was going to go D1 until he started uh, focusing on baseball. He's had the exit velos for years. Uh, he's been able to lift the ball a little better than you would expect for a guy, given his Indiana high school background. He was good on the showcase circuit. It just sort of checks all the boxes. And if you're wondering, well, how did this guy you know, last until I think he was the 20th pick in the first round? It's because he was 19 on draft day. And a lot of teams look at the history. And if you could imagine a guy that was 19 on draft day that's been playing since he was 13, that's in Southern California, that plays year-round, is maxed out physically and only plays baseball, that guy should be moved down because he's older than everybody else. Montgomery was, I think, literally the opposite of all of the things I just said. And he was in Indiana playing multiple sports. 
So the 19 on draft day doesn't apply to him. It applies to those guys and not him. And some teams were lazy and just apply that indiscriminately to every player of the same age. And that's why I think I had him 10th or 11th on my board. And I was just like, this doesn't apply to this guy. He's better than this. And then, you know, luckily for me, he was one of those guys that I was right about. Yeah, that's so funny. We had Mike Shirley on shortly after Colson Montgomery was taken uh, in that draft a few years back, and he took the flamethrower to the 19-year-old high schooler the same way you just did. I'm really glad to have – it's awesome just to have a a backup to that kind of reasoning, too. It's a really good way of picking apart There's a reason to not like the 19-year-old player, and it was the guy that I was talking about, and like I guess the former White Sox, uh, Blake Rutherford, is the example I always use because he is exactly all the things I just said. And it should apply to him because that's where the the sort of history comes from because you can imagine a scout overrating a guy that he's been seeing for three years in Southern California – as opposed to the guy that he hasn't seen in you know, Indiana or hasn't been at all the summer stuff. So I think some scouts, and I don't know if Mike's one of them or not, I haven't talked to him about this specifically, but some guys just think all 19-year-old stuff is wrong because someone's telling me a guy's not good because he's like six months older than that guy and that's dumb. Right. And I'm like, no, no, over the whole, it is correct. There are just pockets where there are exceptions. And for me, Colson was an egregious exception that I don't think the industry figured out. And I think they're slowly starting to figure that out now. Could you see him playing big league ball by the end of the year? Yes. He's, an, he's another one of those guys where if you are imagining the position player that can sometimes get moved maybe a little quicker than like a rubric would say, well, you need to play, you know, 70 games at least at every level. And da, 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 da. you think, well, the exception to that would be well, the team wants to call him up because he's a potential cornerstone. B, he's got the mental makeup to handle being thrown at the deep end of the big leagues. And C, he was already a high pick and a top prospect. So, like, they're kind of getting tied to this guy. Like, it was a discussion we had when I was in Atlanta and we had Dansby Swanson. He got called up, I think, before people would say he was technically ready. But it was basically like, well, we think this guy can handle it mentally and we think he's going to be really good. So let's get him up here now and get this whole thing started. And that ended up being right. But it was like a little rocky there for the beginning. And I Mm -hmm. think Montgomery fits a lot of that stuff where he can handle this and he's going to be here. And, like, how much can he learn in AAA? Because he may be one of those guys – that won't be challenged in AAA in the same way. Again, in Atlanta, we had that with uh, Acuna. Is like, and I believe the Yankees had it with a couple guys. Where like, if you were to be able to get the GM to be honest, he'd be like, that guy was kind of getting bored in AAA. Like he was, he was doing things to entertain himself because the pitchers weren't good enough. And those guys, they're rare, but those guys you need to get into big leagues as soon as possible because you don't want them getting bored and like not liking the way they're being treated and things like that. And not that I think he's like a malcontent, but like sometimes guys can get bored in AAA if they're too good for AAA. And I, he might be that guy. Like I, I think you should prepare yourself for that kind of thing to happen. So that if he, you know, two months into the season looks like he's ready and is knocking on the door to not then be like, oh, it's too early. He's not ready. It's like, no, there's there's a subset of guys in the minors where he's not ready, doesn't really apply. And I think he might be in that group. Yep. That is the Francisco Lindor corollary. That's what I like to call it. Yeah, I think Jesus Montero had that. There's a couple guys that came to mind when I yep. said that. Uh, and I also remember there was a, a GM that told me, I won't say the player's name. Although his career is now over, it's how long I've been doing this. He was like, this guy got to the big leagues uh, so fast. He never failed in the minors, and he learned how to fail in the big leagues. And I never want a guy to learn how to do that. So that's like another. That's like the opposite end of it to consider is like maybe somebody needs to have a bad week in AAA before you call them up, so that they don't have to have thirty people asking them questions during their first slump. They need to have nobody asking them questions because in AAA well, you don't get a lot of questions. I'll, I'll mention unnamed just to make it real, and I don't mind saying it because he's talked about it uh, out loud on broadcasts and uh, and here on the show. Gordon Beckham has talked about that quite a bit. That was an issue for him yeah. in his White Sox career, and it's something he was uh, he spent a lot of time trying to work out. If you think about any college draftee, Khalil Green comes to mind, that got to the big leagues quick and then maybe didn't sustain it as long, I sort of assume that that is the, mm. the thing that like held back the potential, and that's the guy I'm thinking about was a high school draft, but basically got there really quick. I think he was like 20, and then didn't was like good for a year or two, and then didn't quite hold up and just became an extra guy for a while. 
And the team was like, yeah, he, he didn't know how to handle failure. And he was year six or seven was starting to physically decline by the time he figured out like the mentality he needed. And then became one of those like good role players, good for the clubhouse, whatever. And it's just like, that guy might've got a $200 million deal if he would have figured this out. Games played by humans. Got to remember it. Kylie, really, really appreciate the time, my man. And you can find all of Kylie McDaniel's work on ESPN. It's uh, readily available and out now. He's got the AL teams ranked in terms of systems. Uh, and the NL teams, that, those came out earlier, what was that, two days ago, Kylie? So it's all out there, isn't it? Yes. The uh, Friday, the AL list came out. And that was the last thing. I got a, My wife bought me some... Uh, Donuts as a as a reward because I think I wrote fifty thousand words in two weeks. That's that's too many words in in so few weeks, man. I really appreciate the time. Donuts, be safe. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's the way to go. At Kylie McD on Twitter, you can find the links to the rankings right there. Thank you, Kylie. Appreciate the time. Yep, and be on the lookout. I'm not pivoting into draft season, so that uh, fit the overall pick. I'll be writing extensively about starting about two weeks from now. We will call you in June, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You got it. A big thanks to Kylie McDaniel for joining us here on White Sox Weekly. Thanks to Jack McGrath, our producer. I'm Connor McKnight. We'll catch you next week for more White Sox Weekly right here on ESPN 1000. Have a great afternoon.